Well, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 if you haven't already. And today is sort of a, a part 2 um, sermon as we're looking at verses 1 through 10. So I just kept the same title and did part 1 and part 2 because I am super creative. Um, and so that's what we're doing. But saved by grace in order to walk in good works, uh, part 2. Because that's really the outgrowth of what happens when we praise God for the fact that salvation is all of God's grace. And, and as we'll get to, uh, God has called us as a result of this to walk in good works. And what you saw this morning through this pregnancy, uh, unplanned pregnancy care and support team is a, uh, a first-rate application of what it means uh, to walk in good works which God has prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. So the, the uh, putting together of this team and people becoming trained is in a sense believing that God will connect us with people that we can minister to. So already walking in faith and trusting the Lord in that. So last week we saw that salvation is all by God's gift of grace through faith so that he will get the glory as we walk in Christ. And that is our aim. I know that's your aim as I uh, hear you talk, as we have conversations. I know that you as a church family want to see God glorified and God exalted. So the way this happens is we remember what God has saved us from. Verses 1 through 3 tell us that. We remember what God has saved us from. Number two, we celebrate that our salvation is all by God's grace, which prevents us from unintentionally telling someone else that there's something that they can do to earn God's favor for salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor for salvation. It is all a work of God's grace. Number three and four, which we'll discuss today, talk about today, is that we are to cling to what God has saved us for and work for what God has saved us to. So let's read together in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's the gospel. But God... Side note, if you're ever not sure how to share the gospel with someone, listen to their story and then just say, but God. And that will be a, an inroad into talking about the gospel as they talk about their pains, their hurts, and we begin to discuss sin, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he, he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's illumination this morning. Heavenly Father, you, you're the author of life and you have spoken marvelously through creation. Through creation, you've told us that you're the one true God who is eternally powerful. And, and yet you've gone even further than this general revelation. You, you've spoken to us specifically in this word which we hold in our hands or even incredibly get to carry around with us in our, in our devices, in our pockets. And you've given us everything that we need to know, every person on earth needs to know to worship you, to walk in faith, to live a life that pleases you. And there's no problem in the world that your word does not speak to at its root cause. And so with that, Father, we want to strive to know your word, to understand it, so that we can first apply it to our own hearts and then walk with others who need to hear your word applied to their hearts. And knowing this, Lord, you um, would you build our confidence today, we pray, through your word. Would you open blind eyes today? Would you heal broken hearts? Would you enlighten our minds through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit to the truths that we strive to understand this morning? These are truths that are beyond our natural ability to understand and yet are made quite accessible, very accessible for us to be able to understand because you have given these truths to us for the purpose of understanding you and knowing you. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to fix our gaze on you and your glorious grace as you grip our hearts in love. I pray this with confidence, knowing that you are ready to help your people who seek you for wisdom and understanding. I would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are to cling to what God has saved us for. We see that in verses 7 and 8 and 9. Last week we highlighted the point only quickly, but that, 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 God is, um, that God has saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. One practice that's common throughout the ancient pagan world is the idea of dedicating statutes and trophies to victories and battles that have been won. And then when, when, uh, when others would come and, and travel through the area, they would travel through the area where these places are, are, um, are these uh, trophies are situated, and they would see, oh, this is a great king or a great nation who's won many battles. And as you think about this in the spiritual realm, God would set up those whom he has saved, his children, he would set apart and he would save them, he would show them to all of the princes and principalities in all of the spiritual world to say, these are my people, these are my victories that I have won over uh, hell and the devil, and I have become victorious, and the evidence is in their lives, in my people, a possession, a chosen possession that I have saved for myself. First Peter 2, 9 says, but, which means that he's getting ready to say, but you are a ro- chosen race. There's something else before that, but not everybody 
uh, is saved. That would be universalism. It would be a false doctrine. Not everybody in this world becomes a Christian. And if we live in such a way that we think if people are nice, they're going to heaven, we will rub shoulders with so many people who will end up in an eternal hell that we fail to speak the truth of God's love to because we think they're nice and we have a functional theology that doesn't believe God really hates sin and pours out his wrath on sinners. And friends, there would be nothing more grievous to our hearts than to hold hands with somebody as we walk to the gate of hell and have smiled and have conversed and not yet shared their need for a great Savior. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That or so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God proclaims this for all of eternity, and he allows us to be involved in this process. Our part in this is to proclaim it. We see it in the psalmist who asks for God's forgiveness and says, so that I may tell, he'll say the next generation, so that I may tell people of your loving kindness. And so this is why we need to cling to the reality that salvation is all by God's Grace. The ESV Study Bible words it this way, God's favor upon those who have transgressed his law and sinned against them. This is for grace. But grace may be also understood as a power in these verses. Grace not only offers salvation, but grace also secures salvation. And that's really a review point that we talked about in, in previous weeks. Salvation is by grace. And salvation is through faith. So Paul assumes a two-sided nature of faith, right, in his discussion of salvation. Faith is, is relational, which describes a reliance upon a reliable God. Faith is a, is a covenant word. It's a word that expresses commitment and trust that bind two people together. And throughout the Bible... God, by his grace, makes promises and his commitments to his people. And then they, in turn, are to trust not only the promises, but they trust the promises because the one making these promises is fully and completely reliable. This is why when God came to Abraham in our earliest portions of the Bible and said, Abraham, take your family and take your things and go. And what happened? Well, the very next morning, early, Abraham went. He didn't wait till as as late as he could in the day and it still be called today. So it was obedience, right? We tell our kids sometimes delayed obedience is disobedience. Abraham didn't delay because he believed the God who made the promise. He believed the God who made the command And when he said, go to the place, I will show you. He didn't even know where he was going. He just knew if God was telling me to go, I'm going to go. And Hebrews tells us, and Romans tells us, that it was accredited to him as righteousness. His faith was accredited to him as righteousness. 
So to say I have faith doesn't say so much about me. To say I have faith doesn't say so much about you as it does to point to a God who is trustworthy. When we say I have faith, we recognize that we have faith in an object. Faith always has an object. You came in this morning and you found your, the place that you're going to sit in. Maybe it has your un, uh, invisible name written on it or your name written in invisible ink. And you always know like this is my chair, right? Some of you have your chairs. Um, <laughs> and you sat down because you trusted the chair. You didn't question it. You didn't have a long dialogue about it. Either did or you didn't. And when I came in, I didn't see anybody on their hands and knees checking to see that all the screws were in place and that the legs weren't getting ready to topple to either side. I just saw a bunch of people come in and sit down. And when God says, child of God, I want you to trust me that this is for your good, the way that I'm commanding you to live, the way that I'm commanding you to to turn from yourself and turn toward me is the very best way. And you will know if you have faith by how you respond to God's call on your life. And our position as believers is not to try to to, to, uh, to persuade people alone of our own strength or by intellectual conversation, but we would appeal to them to trust the Lord. And we'll see whether or not they have faith. Now, maybe they don't have faith today, and maybe in six weeks or in, in several years, God will open their eyes or, or open their hearts to the reality of who God is and that he's trustworthy. And then we'll see their faith come out at that point. We don't just give assent or agree with or nod to ideas of salvation or about God. We set our hope and our confident expectation in who God is. And we walk with him relationally. This is why God sent his son. Because he loved the world. And he sent his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And Paul wants to be really clear. Now, you're going to notice that there's a repetition here. If you look at verse 5, I'm just going to read 4 and 5. I don't have it on the screen here for you. But at the end of 5, you'll hear this phrase. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And depending on your Bible, you'll probably have a a dash right there. uh, or, Or depending on how your Bible, they might format it differently. But this is like a parenthetical statement here. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By the way, it's by grace that you've been saved. God God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then he goes on speaking about how we're raised up and we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ so that God might display the immeasurable riches of his love to everyone in the universe. And then he comes in to elaborate on what he said in verse 5. For, which is not in verse 5, but it is in verse 8. For, By grace you have been saved 
through faith. Oh, and lest you think that you need to work up the faith in your heart, lest you think that even coming to faith or coming to a right understanding and and rightly applying that faith is your own doing, let me help you see that faith is the gift of God. He says it negatively and he says it positively. And this is not your own doing. This referring to faith, referring to the the whole of salvation. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. In other words, he's, he's sort of getting at the fact that, okay, even if we acknowledge that salvation is all of God's grace, even if we acknowledge that I can't change this heart of mine that was dead in trespasses and sins according to the ways that I once walked, let me help you to see that God's grace is what saved you through faith, which, by the way, is not your own doing. It is a gift Not a result of works. Why? So that no one might boast. Because Paul knows our tendency. Our tendency is is to, to acknowledge, okay, on a grand scale, I understand that my salvation is a gift of God's grace. And I love that. But, you know, even in, 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 in the quietness of my heart, I still am going to run to the fact that my works prop me up before God. I'm still going to want to cling to the way that I responded when somebody was unkind and unloving toward me and and God in his mercy gave me self-discipline to respond in a way that was godly. I just might want to take credit for that. You know, I I just might want to weave that into a conversation with somebody at the house later on. Man, I had this situation earlier and you should have heard how he spoke to me. But you know what? I was loving. I was godly back. I mean, I'm so thankful that it was all of God's grace, right? You see how we do this? Or am I, am, I the, am I the only one or no? Anybody else? Raise your hand. if you. I'm seeing some smiles. It's time to stick our hands up in the air. We do this. And Paul wants to be crystal clear that God is saving a people to himself. That God in his grace alivens all. Hearts. I want you to listen, and I won't have this on the screen for you, but in Acts chapter 16, there's a beautiful picture that, that takes place in Acts 16. And um, let me just find it here. I wasn't planning on sharing this here, but here we go. Um, so when Lydia is, is converted here, Paul is preparing to go to Macedonia. So setting sail from Troas, uh, they made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace and uh, the following day to Neapolis. And there to Philippi, which is the leading um, city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where, there, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down there with, and spoke to the women who had come together there. So this is their situation. They're traveling. They're moving from place to place. They're in between locations, in between point A, point B. And they're saying, hey, it's a Sabbath. Let's go find a place to pray. And we're just going to talk with the people there. And so as they get there, they're they're talking to the people there. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. What we see in the case of Lydia is a woman who was a worshiper of God in a general sense. She believed in the God who had come to save through Jesus Christ. She was baptized, and what happened right after that? She followed in good works. She invited them to their home. Didn't mean that she had a, a theological theological treatise for why she inv- invited them to their to her home, but but she was moved by God in her heart to believe and to hear, which means to hear and receive the things that Paul was sharing. And this is how salvation works. And we, we converse with people and we don't know who is going to believe the gospel. Right. I love how one pastor has said it uh, in, in Indiana. He says, I just believe I believe in the doctrine of election. He says uh, probably more than anybody in here. I just believe that everybody is elect and it's their job to prove me wrong. In other words, I'm going to share the gospel with everybody, believing that everybody is going to respond favorably to the gospel election. God's sovereignty and salvation does not for one moment slow the believer down from evangelistic ministry. In fact, it propels us forward because we know that, at one, that one day every nation and tribe and tongue will be represented in heaven as we worship God. We just don't know when that last salvation will come. So we are on a mission to seek it out with everyone whom we can. And so we share the gospel as we go, communicating that it's by God's grace that we would be saved. Before salvation, that means that we feel the weight of God's wrath toward us. We need to allow people to feel the weight of God's wrath toward their sin and not remove them from what would be God's loving conviction in their life. If we do that, why do they need a savior? If we communicate the gospel in a way that communicates God loves you as you are and nothing needs to change, but come to church with us. We have stripped the gospel of its power. But when we genuinely, lovingly, patiently, enduringly, and kindly come alongside and allow people to feel the weight of the condemnation that is coming from God for their sin, the Bible calls it God's wrath towards sin. It's real. It's really coming. And people really don't. People really can't fix themselves first before coming to Jesus. Before acknowledging that their sin has left them desperately in need of someone to solve their sin problem. But good news, the very God who calls you to be holy has provided a holy substitute. You see, it's by grace that I've been saved. Well, what do I have to do to, to, to get that grace that you've gotten? Nothing. Do you believe? No, wait a minute. Do you, do you mean, do I believe that I'm a sinner? Well, yes, I do believe that. Do I believe that God would love me, that God could love me? I don't know. Then that's the only thing that I want to encourage you to focus on is these, this two-sided coin. You're dead in your trespasses. And God will make you alive. Do you believe? This is why Paul said that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and he will bring to nothing the most powerful. And that's why God has been pleased to save those who believe. Do you believe? And the conversation can go from there.
We look at verse uh, 10. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This Greek word translated workmanship occurs here. And it occurs in Romans. In Romans 1.20 Paul says. For since the, the creation of the world. His invisible attributes and his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So Paul is referring both uh, or Paul is referring to the original creation in Romans 1.20. God's workmanship in creation, which communicates that he is the one true God, that he is eternally powerful. And here he is referring to a new creation in Christ which God is saving to himself, a people for his own possession. And we'll see as we move down through the, uh, the rest of chapter 2 in the coming weeks that, that what that has done, what God is doing in this process is he's, he's creating a new creation of people, a new kind of people. People from, as I mentioned, every race and tribe and tongue and nation. People uh, broadly to categorize Jews and Gentiles who will be brought together as one new people created for God's glory, something that only God could do. And so therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a verse I love to quote, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And I need to tell you, if you think I've been emphasizing this point, that salvation is all of God. Too much in the last few weeks. I hope that as I've read these passages repeatedly, it's part of why I'm rereading these passages as we're focusing on different segments of these passages. It's because Paul emphasized this, this over and over again. Paul emphasizes these realities. And brothers and sisters, where there are parts of this that your mind is saying, I can't wrap my mind around this aspect of God, it would be wrong for you to say, well, therefore I'm not going to believe it, but rather to say, Lord, help me to see you as you really are. Because there have a lot, been a lot of things that have happened in our world that we re- would, might wrestle with to say, well, was God sovereign over that? Well, he's either sovereign over everything or he's not sovereign at all. And so even as we look at the atrocities that have, that have happened in our world's history, we recognize that in a way that we can't understand, God allows humans to act in certain ways that are catastrophic from our perspective and in a, in a, in a, in a perplexing way. Everything that happens on God's grand stage will bring glory to him in eternity. Simply the reality that we don't understand it ought to cause us to lift our hands in praise. To acknowledge right out of the gates, God, you are more vast than I will ever understand. Have you ever thought about what you're going to do for eternity? And, oh, is eternity, is heaven going to be exciting? Or are you just going to sit around and sing songs all day? I don't really like singing that much. When you love God and you recognize that God is eternal in every attribute there's a sense i believe in which we'll we'll understand either everything a whole lot more and yet there's another sense in which for all of eternity we will be growing in our knowledge and love and understanding and appreciation for the reality of who god is with his eternal attributes sometimes we confuse making a decision Uh, to become a Christian with salvation. 
if someone makes a decision to become a Christian and yet their life isn't followed by the good works that which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, something is off. It doesn't mean that somebody can become a Christian and live however they want. God has created good works that we should walk into them. Right now, you ought to be getting really excited about what God has for you. You begin to say, well, what am I doing this? I don't know. I need to leave part of it so that I can walk in the good works which God prepared for me to walk in that I don't even know about yet. Right? An unplanned pregnancy care and support team is saying, I'm going to get trained because I know that this is a real need in our culture and we want to be available. So by faith, I'm going to get trained. We're going to ask the church to pray and we're we're going to live expectantly waiting for God to connect the dots. Because we just believe he will. We just believe he will. God prepared these works beforehand. Verse 10, uh, we are God, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James says, you show me your works. I'm sorry, you show me your faith without works and I'll show you a faith that's dead. And God prepared these works that we should walk in them. To prepare beforehand is the word he used And Romans 9 shows this. And this is, God is the subject here. God is the one doing the saving. God is the one doing the calling. God is the one opening the hearts. God is the one preparing the works that we are to walk in. Paul is saying, this is all of God's grace, soup to nuts, from beginning to end. Our salvation is all of God's grace. And so, worshiping God, which means to declare the worth of God, And evangelism or worship, evangelism, and discipleship are the only proper response to God's call. When he opens our hearts to understand and gives us the gift of faith. You see, faith is the means through which salvation is happens or or through which it is expressed wouldn't it be interesting if i went to the doctor and i needed to get a shot and uh and so i had the right medicine that was prescribed the exact right medication that was prescribed right and so they put it in the uh, syringe right and they do a little i don't do the people actually tap the air out of it and you know tap the thing and they put it in my arm and they give me the shot and i get the shot and then uh and then afterward i say man i am so thankful for that needle i love that needle Right? They would look at me like, what are you talking about? The needle is simply the means through which the healing medication was administered. Faith is simply the means through which our salvation is expressed. We are saved by God's grace, which is all of God's grace, through, it's recognized through our faith, which is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So at every part along the journey, salvation is all of God's grace. And so evangelism, as I said, I said worship and evangelism and discipleship. As we think about evangelism, evangelism doesn't necessarily need to be this thing that we try to conjure up. And we want to know the word. We want to love God's people. We want to love people of the world. We want to be engaged in conversations with people who, who aren't of the church. We, want to, we need to know unbelievers so that we are in a position to love them, so that we are in a position to accept them as we lead them to the one who offers forgiveness for their sins. 
Evangelism shouldn't feel forced. Evangelism shouldn't feel like something I have to do perfectly because if I understand that salvation is all of God's grace, I also acknowledge that my far less than perfect efforts will not stop God's grace from connecting to the heart of another individual. Or maybe I'll share it in a way that communicates part of it and the Lord brings someone else along the way at another time to share another aspect of the gospel and they all of a sudden begin to understand God's love for them. Well, who gets the credit then? Well, it doesn't really matter. God gets the credit. We get to have a part in it. The fact that we get to have a part in it means that it's all of God's grace there too. Why? Because God created that conversation to happen before the foundation of the world. So that we would walk in it as believers. So brothers and sisters, here's my question for you this morning. Recognizing that salvation is all of God's grace in your life as well as in the life of other believers you know. And knowing that it can only be all of God's grace in the life of unbelievers that you know. What are you willing to do? To walk in the path that sets you up to be available for the good works which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. As you abide in Christ, your heart will become more sensitive. John 15, 1 through, well, John 15 speaks to this entire issue that we need to abide in Christ so that we will be producing the fruit that comes by God's grace as he draws us in through his word and relationship so that we're available to hear the Spirit's whispers for conversations that we're to engage in. For, for discerning as best we're able when to engage or how far to go in a conversation. And we say, maybe this happens through conversation. Maybe I need to serve this person first. Maybe I need to love them through meeting a practical need in their life. Maybe I need to become equipped for something that I know God will call me into. Brothers and sisters, he will not call you into that work if you're not prepared for it. And if he does, you won't recognize it. And it doesn't foil his plans because he's got someone else. But don't you want to be a part of it? Don't you want to be a part of, of living for God's glory by sharing the greatest message in all of the universe with those that you would get to share with? There is nothing better, friends. So what's next? Is there something in your life that needs to be reprioritized? Is there a part of life that you love so much you're not willing to give it up? To walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I think that'd be a wonderful prayer to pray. Heavenly Father, will you give me, by your grace, a desire to want to walk in the good works which you have prepared before the world so that I would walk in them? Would you give me a willingness to do the heart and life preparation that needs to happen so that I'm a vessel fit for the greatest work in the world? Would you give me a patience to wait on your perfect timing? And would you give me courage to serve, to speak, and to love 
when you make those moments available. I'd also be remiss if I just didn't close with this. We like to think of these works as extraordinary. And I will tell you that most of these works are regular parts of your daily living that become extraordinary as you see God work. Paul was just traveling from town to town. He went to worship, he sat down, he had a conversation, and God did something. So as you go from place to place, readying your heart, asking God for desire, the Lord will always be faithful to his promises. Our part in the equation is to be ready, to be equipped, to be ready for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us uh, so much to consider in your word this morning, and I pray that you would give us a desire and a heart to receive it with gladness. I pray that we would desire to order our lives around the priority of the gospel. I pray that, that we as a church family would not see this as the pastor's jobs or the elder's jobs, but that we would recognize it as the believer's job, the priesthood of believers, to be ready for every good work that you have called us to as uh, believers, corporately as a church, as well as individually. Father, I pray that we would be ready to the point that we would be willing to become equipped, that we wouldn't say no to equipping opportunities because we're afraid that we would fail, that we wouldn't say no to opportunities to grow in your word because we don't understand it immediately and therefore we become bored by it. Lord, would you, would you shine the light of the glory of your word into our hearts? Would you give us understanding and a desire to set ourselves uh, before your face in your word. And would you give us a, an understanding of how we need to reprioritize some of the things that we love in this life that don't work for eternal purposes. And surely every good and perfect gift comes from above and is from you and you've given us things in this life to enjoy and to la relax and to unwind and all of these things, many of these things are good things, good gifts. And yet you're the greatest gift. And your grace is the greatest gift that we could convey to another. And so would you help us to recognize the monumental opportunity that we have before us. And to take it up in faith. Being equipped, being ready for every good work and making our first step in faith. Not knowing how you'll work, but patiently knowing that you will. And we will give you all of the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.